Welcome to the Freshman 15, a film discussion podcast where we focus on the freshman works of 15 notable directors. Here's what we do each episode. We talk about a different freshman film, what's good, what's bad, what themes and stylistics the director went on to use in later films, and what was kicked to the curb. Also, we'll give you our opinion on whether the film still stands up, if it ever did, or if it's for completists only. I'm Daniel Long, and what you didn't know you know is that I once had to bury at least two animals because they were eaten by coyotes. And I'm Jeremy Bear, and when I was a kid, I sold my pet gerbil to my sister for a profit. Wait, what? say that again. What you didn't know you what? The unknown known. Got it. Got it. All right. Wow. <laughs> that's, a, that's a puzzle that you get the special prize if you can solve that one. <laughs> Should we get started? Yeah, let's do it. I think we'll all be together again. I think we're going to live pretty much just like we do here. And I want to be able to find my pets. I don't want them dug up and scattered all over creation. I want them right where I know where they are. And I believe that we'll all be reunited. I really do. I believe that from the bottom of my heart. She got me believing that not. I never believed in it. uh, Before, but I still do. I hope she's right. So, Daniel, you and I have a mutual friend who has made this statement to me. I'm not a person who watches documentaries. And I said, well, why not? And she said, they're a waste of my time. What? Yeah. Okay, I get it. A lot of people aren't into documentaries, but it just seems like everyone kind of pays lip service at the very least to documentaries, right? I mean, you know, you're, you don't want to be known as a person who doesn't watch them, even if you don't. But you know what, though? There's an honesty to that statement. And in that sense, I appreciate it. Because what she said was, if I'm going to invest the time, 90 minutes plus, to sit down with a film, why would I want that to be some person that I've never met sitting down and yammering about something that happened in their life? I want a movie if I'm going to watch a movie. And you know what? I think that's, a, that's actually a fairly common thought, whether or not it's expressed. Yeah, but documentaries are commonly associated with, okay, we're just going to provide you information. Like it's a news report or something. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe a lot of people do look at documentaries in that way. So that makes sense to me why people wouldn't want to watch that. Because if it's just about, oh, we're going to download this information to you, or here's a public service announcement that really lasts for two hours, then that doesn't sound appealing. Maybe the, uh, the even more important question is, Daniel, Jeremy, the freshman 15, you're talking about 15 films. You're on episode 14, meaning you've got exactly two directors left. Why in the world would you want to spend one of your two remaining episodes on, of all people, Errol Morris? Errol Morris. And his freshman film, Gates Gates of of Heaven. Heaven. I mean, but I don't think you can talk about film, at least how it is today. You, You certainly can't talk about documentaries like today's documentaries without mentioning his name. No. But he's done so much for film in general. Oh, yeah. That I, I think it, they, we have to talk about him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you say documentary, people think of Ken Burns. Right, of course. And that's, I like some of Ken Burns stuff. Sure, sure. But there are those things you know you're going to get. While I've appreciated Ken Burns documentaries, I'm not what you would say a Ken Burns guy. If I see a Ken Burns documentary on Netflix, it's not an automatic click for me necessarily. Right. But you know in advance with most documentaries, there's going to be an agenda. There's going to be a point of view that they're going to try and, in many cases, relate to me in such a way that I'm going to be so impassioned about it that maybe I'll even take some sort of action or I'll contribute to something or I'll be made aware about something 
that I'll want to talk to other people about it. That's that's kind of the flavor of what I would say most documentaries, at least in this day and age, are trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we're actually in a golden age of documentaries, specifically because of subscriber programming. I mean, you think of Netflix, yeah. you think of HBO. I mean, you even think of things like ESPN. Right. They're doing so much with nonfiction film that I think there's a resurgence, at least in what documentaries can do and what they can accomplish in terms of storytelling and really drawing people in to not only give the viewer a sense of maybe an action of of wanting to do something, but also that they find themselves as part of this larger narrative that's actually going on. Now, I don't know if this was true in a larger cultural sense, but this was my impression. Maybe this is because this is how it worked for me. But I felt like a few years into the 21st century, there seemed to be a kind of renaissance of documentary filmmaking. There seemed to be this kind of rock star quality to great documentarians all of a sudden. I remember that I was suddenly being made aware of great documentaries and great documentary filmmakers as this was suddenly this very very essential art form that maybe hadn't gotten enough play before. That's a good point. I think I was, it was probably around the same, yeah, the same time for me, I started really caring about documentaries. And not for nothing. I mean, you know, we had our top 10 episode uh, several weeks ago and both of us chose a documentary film to go on the top 10 because, you know, the, these these are films that clearly made great impressions. And us. in the same spot, number five. Number five, that's right. And also the documentary that you chose for your top 10 happens to be the one that we're talking about today. And of course, that's Gates of Heaven. I've seen this film a number of times and this isn't just, and obviously it made the top 10, so this might be obvious, but it isn't just a favorite documentary of mine. I mean, this is actually, actually a favorite favorite film. Yeah. There's so much to talk about about this film. So much to talk about Errol Morris. Give me the premise of Gates of Heaven. All right. So Gates of Heaven, it chronicles two different cemeteries in, I think, Los Altos, California. Right. Attempting to deal with people's pets who have died and what to do with them because people care for their pets and love their pets and they want to do something when they're when they die and so you have this first cemetery wanting to really take care of those pets and the film is kind of cut in half chronicling these two cemeteries and the second cemetery you can tell they have it going on business-wise yeah. they've kind of brought it down to a science of, of how to market this thing and you just see all of these different people involved in this whole thing of what to do with their pets, and here are the people who want to offer a service for people who don't want to forget. It seems like there's a core question to both. I'm not saying this is the only question or even the most important question that the documentary asks, which is what type of personality would run a pet cemetery of all things? I mean, this is such a specific and odd thing to do. Who does this occur to and who who says, this is where my life is going to go. I'm going to bury people's pets and I'm going to make sure the people that want to bury their pets are, are well cared for and, and give them a place and a, and a point of mourning and all these sorts of things. As is said in in the documentary, there's a need and the need was filled, but who are going to be the people to fill this kind of a need? Totally. And I think that you have two different people who are going to fill that need. You have one, and I'm thinking of Floyd McClure. This is in the first half of the documentary, really talks about his story. Who This has been born out of a desire of what he wants to do with his pet. Right. And certainly if he's wanted to do this with his pet to really offer a place, almost like this Eden for dead pets, yeah. then of course others are going to want that as well. An old Model A came up the road and struck my collie and killed him. I never did catch him, but I grabbed my collie and I held him in my arms until he died. And I pulled one little acre of land right behind the house, oh, I'd say a quarter mile away. And I picked that as a cemetery for my own collie. 
And boy, I knew what to do with it. Make that into a pet cemetery. I thought, well, this is going to be my project of life. The second type of person, and I think this is the genius of Errol Morris, is, is you can't pin them down and saying, oh, well, this person's like this, this person's like that. But right. the Harberts family, Bubbling Well Cemetery, they see an opportunity. Right. And so they want to offer a service, a business venture that does become very successful. We're often asked, why is your business apparently successful where others have failed? And the only answer that I can give is a very obvious one, and that is that... Uh, We have tried to follow sound business practices where it's quite obvious that other pet cemeteries that have now failed did not. So when was the first time that you saw Gates of Heaven? When you saw it, what was your impression? How did all that happen? I saw Gates of Heaven, it was in 2003, and I know the year because I remember taking a film criticism course. We watched a lot of different documentaries. And we watched Gates of Heaven, and then we also watched Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Oh, okay. My impression of Gates of Heaven at that time was, what did I just watch? Yeah. And I think it was fun to watch it with all these different people. We're watching it, we're laughing, we're we're dumbfounded at these people and who they are. Yeah. But then at the end, it's hard to make out what to do with this thing. You were laughing, though. Your first viewing of it with the group it was a funny viewing oh yeah people were laughing there was a sense of what who are these people yeah these are such characters right and then i think it was the same for fast cheap and out of control and why we watched those side by side i don't know why the teacher didn't choose vernon florida but the eccentricities of these characters what am i supposed to make of these things why is there a film about this right and we all had that similar experience and so it was fun to to watch it in that group and to really be kind of asking the same questions of one another. Would you say that your connection to it, though, was pretty immediate, or did that take time? Oh, no, that took time. Yeah. Because I think I had to take time with Errol Morris. Yeah. And I think it took watching more of his films to actually kind of see not just what he's doing, but what really good documentaries do. Right. And I think once that kind of clicked, then I was able to kind of go back and watch these with these things in mind. So I work with a group of people who like movies, and they were going on like a staff trip together. And they asked me, because I was, I was a film guy, apparently. They said, well, what films would you recommend? Oh, man, I feel like I know where this is going. No, totally. And I, I was like, well, you know, I'm really into this movie right now called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. I think okay. it's a really fun, it's a great movie. Right. And I didn't think that they would pick it. Like, I thought that they would... <laughs> They would quickly realize this might not be the movie to watch. Yeah. In like a staff outing. Yeah, but who's seen it? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, how are they supposed to know? Right. So they pick it, they watch it, and I've gotten shit for it still (laughs) to this day. Like, I can't recommend movies because because of that. So I don't know what that says about me. So to answer your question, over time, my love for Errol Morris, specifically for Gates of Heaven, has grown. And that's with every one of his films that I've I've rewatched. Oh, really? Yeah. When did you first see it? Appropriately enough, I actually won the movie in an auction that was to benefit a farm sanctuary animal rescue. That's not true. That's true. That's true. What the (laughs) hell? Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. My wife is, well, she is a vegan. She's an animal rights activist. She's been this way longer than I've known her. There's an organization called Farm Sanctuary. We still contribute to Farm Sanctuary, and they do great work. Factory farming is 
frankly, one of the great evils of our contemporary culture, and it's responsible for so many different health issues and cruelty issues. And one of the things that Farm Sanctuary does is they rescue discarded animals from factory farming situations, and they rehabilitate them, and they do a lot of great work. Oh, wow. Yeah. We went to an event to benefit Farm Sanctuary, and this was one of the things that they had, sort of a silent auction. And I was aware of Errol Morris, and there was a box set of all of his earliest work, none of which I had seen. I won that auction, and I said, great, let's check out early Errol Morris. That's amazing. So you won a catalog of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was a few films, but yeah. Took it home, put in Gates of Heaven, didn't know what to expect, since that was the film of the set that had something to do with animals. I'm sure that's why it was included in that auction. My immediate feeling was, what the hell is this? Right. I mean, it was kind of funny, but I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what I was looking at. It just seemed so pointless, quite frankly. I just, I had seen a couple of other uh, more recent Errol Morris documentaries. And by the way, this is 2004, 2005, around that area. I think the first Errol Morris documentary I'd ever seen was probably the Stephen Hawking one. What is it, A Brief History of Time? Right, right. So, uh, which I really enjoyed, but I don't know. I just didn't really understand why I was supposed to be invested in these people. And I'll admit it, you know, while I kept my affection for Errol Morris... I shelved it for years. I returned to it years later, and it was a real discovery. Not because I thought, oh, I get it now. I mean, I did feel that way. But even more than that, I had become enough of a fan of the art of documentary in general. I was able to recognize how subversive Gates of Heaven actually was. Mm -hmm. And I think there's really no better adjective to describe that film other than just it is a subversive movie. It's a really good point. And also... To kind of move away from the film specifically and to just make note of what you said. I just love that story because I do think that there are certain times when we just watch something or we encounter something that we saw before and it hits us in a totally different way. Yeah. And I I feel like there's something about Gates of Heaven that it it breaks these documentary rules. I'm not enough of an expert in documentary filmmaking to be able to say this for sure, but I feel like the art of documentary when Gates of Heaven was made, which was in the late 70s. Right. I don't know that the rules of documentary filmmaking were quite as established. I can tell you that whatever was established was certainly even then being subverted by Gates of Heaven. Oh, yeah. In fact, it's a at this point a pretty famous story that Errol Morris and Werner Herzog... Yes. Which was, is great. He eats his shoe. Yeah, so the bet was between Morris and Herzog, uh, of course, who went on to become a terrific filmmaker in his own right. If Errol Morris was, within a certain period of time, able to successfully make a feature documentary on the subject of pet cemeteries, he would eat his shoe. And, of course, Werner Herzog then did make his own short documentary about the process of him preparing and then eating his own shoe, which I think you can even... It may even actually be on Filmstruck and or... I think uh, it is on Filmstruck. yeah. Yeah, and it's very interesting. I mean, he boiled it for like five hours. Yeah. And with some garlic and t- <laughs> tomato sauce or something. It's crazy. I didn't mean to, to eat this shoe uh, in public. I intended to, to eat it in the restaurant, but I was pushed a little bit into it. And it makes sense to some extent because it should be an encouragement for all of you who want to make films and who are just scared to start and who haven't got the guts so you can follow a good example. 
Gates of Heaven achieves this subversion, part of the art of documentary filmmaking is you begin with a point of view. Right. You begin with an agenda. I'm out to prove that A plus B equals C. So I know that C is where I need to arrive. So that means I need to get a lot of material on A and a lot of material on B, and right. I need to make them add up so that when that equal C moment comes, at whatever point it comes in this documentary, there's just going to be the satisfying quality to it. And what's so interesting about Errol Morris is he says, well, I don't care about that crap. Right, he doesn't. He says, I want A to be an interesting subject, and I want B to be an interesting subject, and I want to point my camera at A and B, and it adds up to whatever it adds up to, man. I mean, that's not my job to figure what that adds up to. It's just my job to find interesting subjects. Yeah, and I think that also one of the things he subverts is is there is a certain type of documentary filmmaking up to this point, which is if you're going to use a camera and you're going to film real life, then it should feel and look that way. So the camera isn't fixed. You're following people. You don't move anything into the shot. Everything that's in the shot needs to have been there before. I mean, this is truth-telling cinematically. He said, no, there's no right way to make a documentary. He's going to fix his camera. He's going to put things in the shot. I mean, you can tell. I'm thinking of the one specific shot of Dan Harbert's when he's sitting by the pool. The phone? Yes. Yeah. A rotary phone right there outside. Blazing red. It's in, I mean, it's beautiful in the frame, but there's no reason it should be there. And I fixated on that phone too. I'm sitting there looking at it going, what does that say about this guy? We've gotten all the story up to then about how he's clearly an easy mark for motivational speakers and he's Mr. Success and Mr. I want to exude all the knowledge that I have in order to inspire those around me and those kinds of things. And you just see that phone sitting there. And in an odd way, it completes the pictures. Like he wants to show that he's on call, you know, he's he's there and he's ready. It's as vivid as the shot that we see later where he's sitting amidst his sea of insurance trophies. Oh my gosh. All these kinds of things. And this is the thing I love about this film and then documentaries when they're done very well. It's almost like the viewer knows more than the subjects in that you're making sense of all these things you're seeing. Like you're this guy, Dan. He's in the sea, as you said, of his trophies. That says something to us about him that he seems totally unaware of. Right. Which I think is so incredible. When I'd hire a guy, I'd bring him into my office, and I'd specifically design my office so that I could display the maximum trophies on walls and stuff. And I'd bring this guy in who had probably been making maybe 9,000 a year or less. He'd see these trophies, and he'd, geez, you know, they just, they, you know, they were taken away. To hire him, you know, all I did was just tell stories about what each trophy meant to me and what it could mean to him. And if he'd like to increase his income and, you know, his, his future. You know, you see that with Floyd at the beginning where he's sitting outside and you know Errol has said, okay, I want you to sit here. Here's where the camera's going to be. And that's going to say something. Yeah. And it's going to be for us, the viewer, to kind of figure that out. But you have to wonder, these people who are being interviewed, what they're thinking. Like, are they thinking, huh, I wonder why I'm here in this space? Because I don't know if they can be thinking, huh, I wonder what this says about me. Yeah. Yeah. I keep returning, though, to this idea, and this is something that's very specific to Errol Morris. He somehow manages to leave out the agenda side of it. And I think that's what I found frustrating in that first viewing of Gates of Heaven. I sat there thinking, 
you're supposed to tell me how to feel about these people. Right. Like the rendering plant guy. Am I supposed to like him? Am I supposed to hate him? I just tell me how I'm supposed to feel about this uh, and I'll continue on with your movie. And there's Errol Morris, slow and steady and sure as anything, saying, I'm just going to show you what he's like. You feel how you want to feel about him. Why is it my responsibility to tell you, the viewer, how you're supposed to feel? You're an adult. Yeah, there's an amazing amount of generosity toward his subjects yeah. that he shows because of that. Yeah. I mean, it'd be curious to ask him about like his more recent political documentaries, right? Like, sure. how do you feel about Robert McNamara and Fog yeah. of War, Donald Rumsfeld and the Unknown Known? How do you feel about Abu Ghraib? Right. Standard operating procedure. But this early film in particular, you don't know. Yeah. Are you supposed to laugh? I mean, I couldn't help but laugh at some points. Sure, sure. You know, and is he laughing? I don't know. That is the beauty of his filmmaking style. For better or worse, and I think a lot of it is worse, and I lament that, but I think we are a culture who's being the person that I was when I first saw Gates of Heaven, where I'm just sitting there going, you need to tell me how to feel. I need material that is a shortcut around me thinking for myself how this is supposed to go. A little sidetrack. A few years ago, my wife and I were contestants on a reality game show. Mm -hmm. It was a home makeover show. By the way, for anyone listening, if you're extremely curious, the, the show uh, was called House versus House. You can still find it on iTunes and Amazon for pretty cheap if you want to see that episode. But we're sitting in the room. We're sitting in the room that was redone for the show. But it was illuminating when you discover that there's nothing reality about reality shows. That's just not what they're about. There's a point that the producers and the director need to get to. If right. you're not on board, you're just not going to be on that show. Years before that, my wife, the reality star apparently, was <laughs> on uh, she was on a, actually a fairly successful reality makeover show called Tabitha's Salon Takeover. I did not know this. So my wife is a uh, hairstylist. She was actually on the pilot episode. Her salon was. And the premise of the show was you have this woman, Tabitha, who's this brittle, awful human being who just basically goes into a quote-unquote failing salon and just screams and is an asshole to the staff and kicks their ass for 45 minutes. And then miraculously, at the end of the episode, the salon is turned around and it's a successful salon. And Well, the fact of the matter is, it's a construct. Right. And my wife, Carrie, was in the position of she would sit down for these talking head interviews and she would be asked, how do you feel about what your boss just said to you? And she would answer, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I know what she meant, though, and it probably sounded bad, but, you know, it's, it's no big deal. And the Producers would say, yeah, but that was kind of mean, wasn't it? And she would say, no, well, I mean, eh. but she, she actually even apologized right after. It's not a big deal. And the producers would say, but what if she meant it? How would that make you feel? Oh, my goodness. And she would say, I, but she didn't. And the producers finally exasperated would say, do us a favor. Just say that she meant it. Oh, my God. Now, how do you feel? <laughs> And my wife, being my wife, who's a person of terrific integrity, just wouldn't do that. Well, they get the show that they want to get. And in particular, a, a co-worker of hers, uh, our friend Jennifer, Tabitha, makes a comment to Jennifer and she just starts bawling. And then we cut to Tabitha in the Talking Head interview and she's talking about, oh, oh my I hate people that cry at the drop of a hat. It's so gross. Well, the real story is, as my wife told me, you know, even on the day that that happened later on, Jennifer was actually getting verbally abused and berated for almost an hour straight until finally she couldn't take it anymore and she started crying. Wow. But they edited all that out, so you don't know that. 
I see the show, I look it up and I see people are talking about it on message boards. Who is this girl, Jennifer, who cries at the drop of a hat? What an idiot. What a bitch. Can you imagine being such a baby like that? So what what did I do? I I sign up for an account. Of course. For this message board. And I say, no, 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 you don't understand. Jennifer is one of the most sincere, big hearted people that you've ever met. She was berated for an hour and that's why she broke down and cried. Anyone would cry. At that, But you don't see that because it's all being edited out. That's infuriating. And because I said that on this message board, I was banned. No way. It's true. That was a level of reality that fans of reality TV weren't ready for. And by the way, this message board wasn't associated with Bravo or or anything like that. This was just a, a place that administrators decided... No, 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 that's that's too real. We need the real level of reality that we're comfortable with. Now, I know that was a long story, but I tell that story to illustrate the point that, for me, Errol Morris is, I think, one of the most important filmmakers we have. We live in the culture of the reality TV. For sure. And Errol Morris says, we need to stop being that culture. We need to be the culture who listens, who thinks, who assesses for ourselves from an adult, mature, measured perspective. What is it we think and what do we feel about this world around us? This isn't something he's going to manufacture. He's not going to give you your opinion. He wants us to figure it out for ourselves. And that's something that's, I think it's invaluable. I think that's an important point. And I think that's a really good story to illustrate. There's no more important time than now that we need storytellers, filmmakers, truth tellers like Errol Morris. What he's trying to get out, what that truth might be, B is really who people are, not who they're manipulated to be or they're suggested they be. Right. And this is the thing about Gates of Heaven I love in all of his films. If you keep a camera on someone long enough and you have a conversation with them, at some point you will get them. Yeah. They will become almost uncovered. Or at least he will. Yeah, at le- yeah, for sure. At least he will. I actually wrote down this quote that I read in an interview that he talks about truth. And he's, he's talking about documentary film. And he says, it's not that in documentary film we find truth with a big T. We investigate and sometimes we find things out and sometimes we don't. There's no way to know in advance. It's just that we have to proceed as though there are answers to questions, as though, in principle, we can find things out, even if we can't. The alternative is unacceptable. Yeah. He's pursuing something, and and I've heard him say this multiple times in conversations or interviews, is he's like, truth isn't a thing as much as it is a pursuit. And I really like that, mm. that it's actually the in the pursuit that we are telling the truth, that we're finding the truth. Yeah. You see that in his movies. And it's a risk to do that. Totally. I, I think that's important to note because when you decide that I'm going to find interesting people or people with an interesting story, and I'm just going to point my camera without an overt agenda, you're taking a big risk. And the reason I know it's a risk is because I think it's safe to say it hasn't paid off for him every time. Mm. You mentioned earlier the Rums documentary. It's not a great documentary. Not because it's not the recipe for a great documentary. I think it's the recipe for a brilliant documentary. In fact, I was chomping at the bit to see that thing when it came out. And I did. And I thought, well, you got to be kidding. That was it. Right. It's the picture of a withholding relationship, you know, in a way. And in that sense, it's an interesting character study of Donald Rumsfeld, 
critics might even say of the the, the Bush administration in general. Right. But you have Errol Morris on one side, Donald Rumsfeld on the other. And I don't even think it's it, there's nothing combative necessarily about the questioning. But it's a let's get under that. Let's let, let's take the statement that you just said and let's get under that. And there's Donald Rumsfeld, who, you know, he may be a lovely individual, but he said, no, party line, party line, party line, party line. And that's what we get for the for for the duration. We find out nothing. Why the obsession with Iraq and Saddam? Well, you love that word obsession. I can see the glow in your face when you say it. Well, I'm an obsessive person. Are you? I'm not. I'm, I'm uh, cool. I'm measured. And there's, yeah, it's true. And there's something even true about that refusal. Yeah, and that's why, and, and that's why Errol Morris named the movie what he named it, The Unknown Known. Is that what it's called? The Unknown Known. Which comes directly out of a statement from Donald Rumsfeld. And really, even just the title of the film is Errol Morris's frustration of, I don't know what more I can do. We've, we've been together for, for days and days and days, and you won't give me anything except for these enigmatic statements that don't really point to anything. There are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. <laughs> Excuse me, but is this an unknown unknown? Uh, I'm not several unknowns, and I'm, I'm just wondering. I'm not this going. Is an I'm not going to say which it is. While that particular documentary I don't look at as a success, I think it actually points to the success of his overall approach, though. I'm going to leave this open. I'm going to let the story be the story. I'm going to let these people tell what they're going to tell. And nowhere is that truer than in Gates of Heaven. I mean, I think you see that, or at least it comes into play with Phil, the youngest son of the Harberts family, in that he's describing his life, what seems like both of these kids, Dan and Phil, it seems like their lives are in some ways, they're failures, at least in, in their own sense. They're, they're in a place they wish they weren't, or they think that they could be someplace else. Yeah. I feel bad for them. But then I also feel like they're totally missing out on what they do have. Like they, they have this whole life ahead of them in terms of what the family business. Then you have the dad who's not sure of how the sons are going to treat the business when he's gone because he's kind of getting old. And they don't ever necessarily talk together. But you see from these different interviews this potential dysfunction in the family. Right. And you're kind of left to make of it what you will. Yeah. And almost kind of create, at least I did this, a potential future of what that might, what it would look like. Yeah. I think Phil even mentions, you know, I'm younger than Dan. I'm sure it's hard on him that he's got to take orders from me in a way, but that's the way it went. You know, right. he, he went off and decided to be an insurance man for a while. And that's the way it worked out. And, you know, just knowing Dan's personality, that it makes him crazy oh, totally. that he has to essentially work for his little brother, who's a fuck up. <laughs> And just wants to play the guitar. Yeah. In, in one of the most astonishing moments ever put in a documentary, we see Phil talking about his music career and talking about his love for music. And we cut. And there he is with his axe. Oh, my gosh. On the top of a hill, just shredding away. Oh, yeah. For no one except a bunch of dead pets in the valley below him. those moments my brain is almost talking to itself like am i really seeing 
what I'm seeing, that's not something that actually happens in the world, is it? This can't be real. And yet there it is, and it's real. This is something that happens. I love that shot where you just see the amp and the cord yeah. going off frame. Wiggling around. And you hear you hear him playing. Yeah. It's amazing. And the speakers are pointed at the gravestones, <laughs> yeah, by the totally. way. Like this is for the, this is for you, this little guys. For you. <laughs> this is probably something you're already aware of. Roger Ebert listed Gates of Heaven as, in his opinion, one of his ten favorite films of all time. Ever. Ever. It's crazy to me. And by the way, lest you think, okay, I guess Roger Ebert's the kind of guy who, you know, to pick a bunch of obscure films or something like that. Here's a few of the films in his top 10 list. 2001, La Dolce Vita, The Third Man, Raging Bull, Citizen Kane, Casablanca. These are not obscure films. No, these are famous. I mean, yeah. These are films that I think in any film institute would say, yeah, these are the most essential films. Right. But right there, right there next to Kubrick and Wells and Scorsese, uh, Fellini, there's Errol Morris with Gates of Heaven. Roger Ebert felt that Gates of Heaven was such an essential film. In fact, if you don't mind, I just want to read what no, he had I to say about it. No, I think this is great. I think because I've read this review and it's astonishing. It's amazing. He said, uh, this film is a bottomless mystery to me. Infinitely fascinating. It would appear to be a documentary about some people involved in a couple of pet cemeteries in Northern California. Oh, it's factual enough. The people in this film really exist, and so does the pet cemetery. But Morris is not concerned with his apparent subject. He has made a film about life and death, pride and shame, deception and betrayal, and the stubborn quirkiness of human nature. He points his camera to subjects and lets them talk. But he points it for hours on end, patiently, until finally they use language in ways that reveal their most hidden parts. I'm moved by the son who speaks of success but cannot grasp it. The old man whose childhood pet was killed. The cocky guy who runs the tallow plant. The woman who speaks of her dead pet and says, There's your dog, and your dog's dead. But there has to be something that made it move, isn't there? And those words is the central question of every religion. And then, in the extraordinary centerpiece of the film, there's the old woman, Florence Rasmussen, sitting in the doorway of her home, delivering a spontaneous monologue that Faulkner would have killed to have written. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's I mean, beautiful. it's so beautiful. But that lady's monologue is so truthful. And that's the thing, that's the layer that I feel like Errol Morris gets at, which is such compelling film. You have the top layer. And the top layer is, okay, I'm sitting here. I'm in front of a camera. I'm a little nervous. A person is asking me things. I'm going to tell them the kinds of things I, I assume they want to hear. And then there's the layer below that. Right. The layer of... I'm going to give great insight about these things that only I know about because they have to do with my life. And I think if these things are heard, then this is going to be compelling filmmaking. And that's where many documentaries stop. Mm -hmm. But Errol Morris says, there's another layer though. And the layer that's underneath that is, I'm not going to try and do anything compelling. I'm not going to try and give in to any nervousness or anything like that. All I have left is just bald truth about who I am and how I feel. And you have this little old lady who's talking about the pets that have died and her son that won't visit and the way she's treated by the people in her life, even though she's not in a physical position to do anything about it. And she bounces around and she ping pongs and it's this almost this Joycean 
stream of consciousness. So that, beautiful. It, it, but it's incredible. And you know that you're not just watching a film and you're not just watching someone who's aware that a camera's in front of you. You're, you're watching the inside of someone's head. And it's something that we're lucky to have. Boy, if I could only walk, if I could only get out, drive my car. Yeah. And my son, if Peter's only better to me. I don't know. These kids. Sometimes the more you do for him, he's my grandson, but I raised him from two years old. And my husband always told me, he says, Mama, someday you're going to be sorry. Them's a car, huh? Oh, boy. He says, some days you're going to be sorry. You see how it happens, things? She's so aware of the world around her, not, I mean, the camera... At this point, it seems like it's gone. I mean, it's not. She's not talking to that anymore. Yeah. yeah, as you said, she's simply being Florence. Yeah, as we might encounter her on any given day, and we were to ask her a question and spend enough time with her, yeah. we might get that Florence as well. And I think that's the thing about Errol Morris that's really profound for me. Documentaries, when done well is it really does reveal the power of listening. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that good documentarians look at the people that are interviewing as subjects. They're not. They're people. That's what I get from his films. And these people I would never think to be interested in. I learn about them, their lives. I learn about their interests. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm interested. I almost feel like part of their lives in that way. There's a hypnotic quality to Gates of Heaven, and I don't know how else to put it. You get lost in this movie, and not even, I don't even mean just like, oh, I'm so into the story that I just, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm completely lost. I don't even mean that. I mean that I had to keep rewinding parts of this movie because I realized I was just sort of dazed by it. I was dazed by the personalities, just the words and the language and those kinds of things. And I was just kind of floating in the language much more than I was necessarily, you know, beat for beat of the stories they were telling. I mean, these are they're interesting stories, don't get me wrong, but you have that kind of, it's strange. You almost have this kind of like the feeling of that I had when I was a little kid going to the library or something and, and listening to the, the reader read the story that week where it's like, you know, I don't know all these words. I, get, I just know that something is being told to me and I'm immersed in something. Comprehension is kind of part of it, but it's also just kind of, I'm just in the fluid of all this. Right. You know? And I think nonfiction stories, when done well, they surprise, they surprise me at least. Yeah. I think because there's an element of I have to give up something if I'm going to go watch a film that's fiction. Like, I know, I'm just, okay, this isn't real, so I'm going to go in here and kind of give myself to that story, to that world. Yeah. There's a barrier for me going into nonfiction, maybe not so much anymore because I really do love nonfiction, but there is, I think there was, that I kind of have had to grow out of in that this is a true story. It's not a matter of giving myself to the story, but almost making the decision, am I going to be someone who listens to it and be willing to engage it? That's something unique to documentaries that I think when well, they just are so mind-blowing to me. Yeah. It's funny to, to say that, but it's like, wow, this true story kept my interest. Yeah. But I think that's the fear that people have going into documentaries. It's like, oh, is this going to keep my interest for two hours or yeah. whatnot? But man, when done well, I feel like I'm almost more amazed than I am with a, like a fiction film. 
Yeah. Because for that reason. In an abstract kind of way, it actually leads into the next question, which is, are there things in Gates of Heaven that Errol Morris did that he probably wouldn't do later? Or are there things that just maybe didn't work so well? The moments for me that I thought felt a little bit, I don't know if the contrived is the right word, but it felt like I was supposed to make something of them which I think is different than what I felt like the rest of the film was giving me. And that's actually more specific to the Dan character, to Dan Harberts. The moments when he's working at the cemetery, where he's like mowing the lawn, that almost felt a little bit, I don't know if manipulative is the right word, but I'm just like, okay, well, how am I supposed to think about this? I feel like this is like, these are inserted shots for a reason. Like it's the same way, I guess, about Phil's shot with a guitar. But I think it's such a different type of thing that's going on, maybe because Phil's a different character, that I felt like it was a little bit more generous. Whereas with this Dan character, it felt a little bit like, all right, I get it. He used to be this person. He's not this person. He's working hard in the field with his shirt off and the sun's going. I mean, I just felt like it was a little bit, I don't know. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I was thinking about that. Yeah. I think you have Gates of Heaven, you have Vernon, Florida, and they're of a similar level of polish, which is to say, not much, you Mm -hmm. know? Now, that's not to say that they're not compelling. I mean, the characters in them are just so (laughs) odd. Right. You don't forget these characters. But Errol Morris went on to, I think, take that Errol Morris thing that he does, and I think he added lots and lots of polish and flair, and he geared it more and more for contemporary audiences and those kinds of things, whereas... In Gates of Heaven, it's so much an experiment, you know? Right. I mean, that's just how it feels to me. And that's not even to say, like, oh, he just got better and better. I mean, I think he did. Right. I think he did continue to improve his craft. It was, though, to the sacrifice of that kind of roughness, you know, that kind of, I don't know where this is going. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm just going to keep throwing things at you. Whereas by the time you get to Fog of War or Standard Operating Procedure, it's such a well-oiled machine that, you know, you're just you're just on this incredible ride. And that's in a general sense. Right. Something that's much more specific is, well, quite frankly, in a word, Philip Glass. Right. The partnership with Philip Glass, to me, is it became just part of the character of Errol Morris for a long time, you I can, feel like. You, yeah, you can't divorce those two. Yeah, that just wasn't there. Well, there was no music in Gates of Heaven. Except for Phil. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I, we can't say that there was no music. Uh, and I want to say the same is true in Vernon, Florida. Yeah, there's no music in that. Now, by the time the Thin Blue Line came along, which uh, we've barely, I don't even know if we've touched on that yet, but just uh, absolutely mind-blowing. But you have this partnership with Philip Glass where you get this music that is, there's nothing like it. You feel the weight and importance. Right. And that goes on into, you know, Brief History of Time certainly the fog of war. Mm-hmm. You feel the gravity of what these people are saying. I'll never forget the moment in the fog of war when McNamara is talking about how many Japanese people we burn to death in the name of saving lives. Yeah. Killing 50 to 90 percent of the people of 67 Japanese cities and then bombing them with two nuclear bombs is not proportional in the minds of some people to the objectives we were trying to achieve. You have the music there, you have the the graphics, and that's another thing that he became known for with these abstract insert shots that not just bookend scenes, but act as vehicles for uh, a, a way to help us understand layers of story. There is no real visual for, but you know, there's just, I don't know how else to put it, the, the abstraction, whether it's a, a teacup smashing on the ground yeah. in, in a brief history of time or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
or, uh, or, or a carton of eggs, you know, in fog of war to demonstrate what it's like to build a new kind of car or something. You may see a cup of tea fall off a table and break into pieces on the floor, but you will never see the cup gather itself back together and jump back on the table. It's all these extra things that I, I think Errol Morris later decided were these indispensable items to have. But he didn't have any of that back in Gates of Heaven. And I don't want to say the movie suffered for it necessarily or anything like that. But put it this way. I'm glad that he did add those things in yeah. as he continued on with his career. Because it, it added such character to the films in, in a way that was pretty indispensable, I think. So really, I mean, Gates of Heaven... Vernon, Florida, even Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. There's not a lot of investigative reporting. In Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, you have him showing what these people do and like the in, ins and outs of their jobs. Right. But really, these other films, like Thin Blue Line, Fog of War, The Unknown Known, Standard Operating Procedures, you have all these things that he does as a way of revealing his investigative reporting in some ways. Yeah. I guess I bring that up to say that I love his commitment to telling a story in a way that the story needs. That form, I guess, follows Function. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you so much as I'm saying there's a, they're just such different stories that he's, he's yeah. found ways to tell in really helpful terms. And that's why it was so interesting to see him, I mean, I hate to use the word return, but in a way it was a return to a certain kind of story and a certain type of personality when he brought things back to tabloid. Oh my goodness, that film is so crazy. It's, it's just the most bananas thing that you'll see. And I don't even want to try and describe it. I just, just you need to go watch tabloid. Make your own <laughs> judgments about it because it's it's just this thing that it defies description or belief. Even. I will say, and that's a good point. I will say that like watching the trailer or hearing people talk about it didn't make me want to see it. I wanted to see it because it was an Errol Morris film. And I yeah. think that's the only reason why. Yeah. Like I can't understand that story without watching that movie. Yeah. And, and I know I've mentioned this before, but it's a great event in our house when Errol Morris has a new documentary out. I put on tabloid and my wife said, what is this? And I read her the description. She's like, yeah, I don't know. Nah. Right. I said, honey, Errol Morris. She said, cue it up. Well, you know, <laughs> let's, let's give it a shot. And sure enough. So crazy. I mean, it had kinky sex. It had religion. It had a beauty queen kidnap at gunpoint. Chains being spread eagled. It had Mormon missionaries. And there was something in that story for everyone. I mean, I can never understand the public's fascination with my love life. I'm not a movie star. I'm just a person, a human being that was caught in an extraordinary circumstance. And I'll, I'll never forget the comment that my wife made to me after Tabloid was finished. She said, where can we see another film like that? Yeah. And I said, I don't think you can. There is no film like that. That's just something that only Errol Morris can do. Anyhow, needless to say, while he has kept his raison d'etre, <laughs> huh? he has developed. Yeah. He knows what he's about, but right. he's developed. And that's something that I actually really uh, appreciate. I honestly think that he's as uh, crucial a filmmaker now as he's ever been. For sure. I think you're right. So, Jeremy, yeah. I don't think we can talk about Errol Morris without talking about the Interatron. Okay. Okay. Describe for the audience what the Interatron is. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah. So here's how I'm going to describe it. I'm going to describe it by maybe what documentaries would have looked like before something like the Interatron. So because you have a camera and you have an interviewer, 
maybe sitting next to the camera talking to the interviewee, the person's never really looking into the camera. They're looking at the person talking. So Errol Morris didn't like that. He wanted people to look into the camera as much as possible. So he made this device where it's actually a video monitor of his face that the interviewee is looking at with a camera attached to the top of it so that the interviewee is actually talking to the face of Errol Morris, which is projected onto this monitor being filmed in another location. And there's a camera that's filming the person, the interviewee, talking to Errol Morris. So it looks as if he's talking directly into the camera. Right. Is that a fair I, description of the Interatron? I Here's what I... Have you seen it? I've Google imaged it. And okay. yes, I've I haven't seen even it. seen it. The, this was what I thought it kind of was. So times that I've directed videos or those sorts of things where there's we need to have like a teleprompter or something. There's a device... And it's pretty simple. I mean, it has to do with, you know, it's a, a video monitor that actually is reflected off of a piece of glass that's angled in such a way so that the camera shoots through it. And on the, whether it's the tablet or whatever, iPad or something, the text is reversed and upside down. So reflecting off that. So people can look directly into the camera and read. This was my impression. Now, I haven't seen pictures of it. Okay. Is it the kind of thing where it's essentially that, but rather than teleprompter text, it's just Errol Morris? Yes. That's what that is? That's what it is. Okay. Okay. I I think I got it then. It was hard for me to understand like where he was actually spatially in the room. Yeah. But then I watched Tabloid. I'll never forget this moment. I'm like, oh, okay. So this is kind of how it's working. He'll say something off screen, and I think her name's Joyce McKinney. I can't remember. I think, but she looks almost directly to her right. Yeah. Errol Morris's voice is coming not in front of her, but somewhere off into the distance. Yeah. And that's when I was like, oh, okay, he's not even remotely close. Yeah. I mean, she's talking to Errol Morris because his face is projected. Right. But I think it is effective in that when I saw Fog of War and right. I saw Robert McNamara in some ways almost like I was a priest and yeah. he was in a confessional. Yeah. I mean, that was so powerful. Extremely compelling. There's moments that I remember from Fog of War that'll always stick with me. And part of the reason is because it felt like he was telling me this. I'm thinking of the moment when you hear the voice of Errol Morris saying in something like, you know, a Vietnam War or something like that, who is ultimately responsible? And I'll never forget McNamara looking at me and telling me it's the president Mm. who's responsible. There's impact and weight to that Yeah, that I don't know that I would have quite felt if he had been looking at an off-screen interviewer or something like that. It was it really, really drives home that gravity. Even in as early as Gates of Heaven, McClure yeah. addresses the camera. Some other characters too, but that was, uh, that was a surprise, actually, in, in a recent viewing because I don't think I was really thinking about that until these recent viewings that I had in preparation for this where... I'm like, okay, I want to understand where eyeline is and those kinds of things. And there is something compelling, unsettling maybe. Yeah. Very interesting though. And I don't know if it's that moment in the in Gates of Heaven when it happens, but when Floyd is talking about his dog in actually comparison to people, he says, I can turn my back on my dog and I know my dog's not going to jump up and bite me. Right. But that's not the same with people. Right. I mean, to have him saying that to you is like, whoa. I mean, what is he saying about me, about yeah. us, you know? Yeah, it's really interesting. When did he start with this Interatron thing? Was it, I mean, was it in Fog of War or was it earlier? No, I think it was... Was it as early as Fast Cheap? I think so. It was? Yeah. Interesting, wow. He said, it's such a shame that I didn't patent that thing. That's really wild. 
So I don't have a final count in terms of Errol Morris films. He's gone into the realm of sports. He even had a television, an episodic for a while. You know, in fact, he even directed a film film that no one saw with Lou Diamond Phillips. I saw that. Did you really? I've seen it. So you're the one. The one guy. (laughs) In the overall lineup, you've made your, your affections known when it comes to Gates of Heaven. But where would you say it sits in his, uh, in his body of work? For me, it sits at number two. And I think Thin Blue Line has to go first. Wow. Okay. I guess here's my reasoning for it. Thin Blue Line, it just did so many things that I didn't know documentaries could do. Maybe that anyone knew what documentaries could do. Yeah, true. It's one of those films that has just influenced documentaries yeah. from that point to now. I mean, right. it's so influential. And it's such a powerful story. And knowing the backstory and all of that stuff just makes it, for me, like a really powerful nonfiction film. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for you, where does this film stand? If you would have asked me this a couple of months ago, I would have probably put it near the bottom. And not to say that it's out of any kind of distaste for it, but it's just that he's honed his craft so much in ways that I appreciate so much that great film, but he just got better and better. And I think that's still in general my opinion that he improves his craft each time. It's not to say that each film is better than the last, but I think that he just has this upward trajectory craft-wise that I really genuinely appreciate. On the other hand, you gain and you lose, you know, and, and there's this there's right. this roughness and there's this edge to gates of heaven and this there's this unsureness that actually works in the film's favor. So ranking, I can't give you a number, but I would probably say that it's it's in the center. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find it more compelling viewing than the Rumsfeld documentary, certainly as much as I enjoyed and was compelled by like standard operating procedure. It was more typical documentary fare, I guess you would say. Right. And I even hate to say that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think my favorite of his will always be Fog of War. I just, I can't, there's so much that I love about the Fog of War. I can't even, uh, I, I mean, we could do a whole episode right. uh, just going on about that film. But um, the picture of the man, Robert McNamara, a man that history still doesn't know what to do with Mm -hmm. just a despised man but a genius and a conscientious man and a man of a million secrets and and he does the errol morris thing where finally you know we peer we break the skin of, of robert mcnamara and it's on topics that are of terrific historical consequence and you know it's just every minute of that film is just mind-blowing I, I i don't know how else to say it everything else has to fall by the wayside to uh, in my opinion next to the fog of war brief history of time thin blue line incredible i mean right. you know it's just uh, these are accomplishments i think fog of war would be in my essential three for sure with errol morris all of his films are in some ways there's so much to like about all of them. Yeah. But those three, and specifically those two, Thin Blue Line and Gates of Heaven, they're just such standouts for me. And Fog of War I'll put up there as well. And then things just kind of clump together. But yeah. those three are just, they just, they do things that films don't do. Yeah. And that they're documentaries is just a, a remarkable feat. Yeah. An essential filmmaker all the way around. So I want to legitimately talk about this. Gates of Heaven. Does the movie stand on its own? Is it a completist film? What do you have to say about that? I think it stands on its own, especially if we're talking about documentary films. Because at that time, there just weren't films like it. And I also think that it's so important today because listening to people talk for periods of time and have them disclose themselves 
and maybe not even being aware of it, but disclosing themselves while you're listening to them and you're getting a glimpse of who these people are and what this place is, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in film and that doesn't happen in reality. Yeah. And so I think that it's essential for that reason. Yeah. If for no other reason than to help us be people who listen well. All right. I like that. In fact, that influences my answer. Not that I was going to say it's a completist film, but it's really interesting with, I, with, I think, Gates of Heaven. Because to me, the answer isn't readily obvious. Is mm -hmm. this a completist film? And, and I think the reason that it's not readily obvious is because I just wish I could communicate to people that you're not going to get what you think you're going to get when you go to this movie, you know? And you just have to know that. And I didn't know that when right. I went to it, you know? And it took several journeys back to it to, to really grasp that in a way. I, you know, I'm going to say that if you've never watched an Errol Morris film, I think you're going to have to ease into that one, even though he was he, he did such an amazing film, you know, the first time out. But this is something that, you know, in a strange sort of way, this is a deep cut, in my opinion. I mean, I don't want to call it a B-side or something like that, but it's something that I would say watch tabloid or yeah, watch sure. fog of war or something like that and then you know get in the vibe and understand who he is and what he's doing before you visit gates of heaven it's worth seeing i'm gonna say it's not for everyone though and that's a different answer than i would have said about you know i don't know blood simple or spinal tap or something like that i would say whoever you are go see this film it's great gates of heaven I think it's great, but it may not be for you. I would actually agree with that. Like, there's this, uh, there's a certain level in which I think people should watch this film. Yeah. But I, I mean, I have no illusions that people won't give me shit about it. Yeah. Well, especially with your fast, cheap uh, experience there. Totally. And I was in a film criticism course in which we watched this. So that was part of it is we watched these films and we actually engaged criticism on it. If you watch this film and you just are like, whoa, what the hell was that? Yeah. And you don't give it a second chance, nor do you actually maybe read what other people have to say about it. Yeah. Or if you don't watch other Errol Morris films, I mean, I think that I think easing into it is a good way to put it. But I also think it's one of those films to watch and to to discuss and to yeah. talk about and to read about and to wonder what it was you just saw. Yeah. And I think that's fun. Yeah, you know what, man? I mean, that's that's the thing. I, I, w when I first saw Gates of Heaven, I looked at it and said, does this guy, I, I, it's like he doesn't know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I went back to it later and I was like, oh, he knows what he's doing. But there are sides of it where you can pick at certain parts of it and go, okay, he didn't quite know what he was doing in this maybe and in this maybe and that right. kind of stuff. But I'm thinking of how long did that one newspaper spin and spin and spin before it finally, <laughs> you know what I mean? There's certain things like that where it's just like, oh, buddy, come on, you got to. You got to give us something, you know, you got to add a little oil into the works here to, to get this thing a little bit smoother, but that's part of it in a way, you know, it's all, it's all this rough texture that it's part of the whole, but yeah, I mean, I think it's clear. We both love the film and I know we've said this kind of thing before. If you listen to this podcast, I'd say give it a shot, but it's a careful recommend for yeah. me. Okay. That's fair. It's not careful for me, but mostly because I want you to watch it and then I'd love to talk about it. Well, you know. I'd say that's it for this episode of The Freshman 15. Thank you for joining us. Gates of Heaven, challenging film, great film, uh, especially according to me and definitely according to Daniel. See it, but be prepared that it's not your usual documentary fare. But that's a good thing. If you want to reach us to tell us what you think of this episode, Gates of Heaven, how much you didn't like it or how much you loved it, we'd love to hear from you. 
You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. You can email us at freshman15film at gmail.com. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to rate us on iTunes. It helps people when they're searching for podcasts for the Freshman 15 to come up right away. So that'd be great if you can do that. And as always, we want to shout out to our friends over at Steelcraft. Born of a desire to see people come together over food and drinks, Steelcraft unites local eateries with a communal dining space in Long Beach. For more information, visit SteelcraftLB.com. Now, Daniel, this is typically where we sign off, but I did want to mention very quickly that I'm sure it was lost on no one that this is the Freshman 15 podcast. And this episode that you're listening to right now is episode 14 of 15, meaning that we've got exactly one left. One left. Yeah. I can't believe that. Somehow we made it. We're, we're nearing the end. And you're probably wondering, so what? Is this it? We hope you're wondering. What's episode 15? Who's the final director? What's the final film? Is this going to be an extra special something or other? Are you going, is it going to be a star-studded event? Are you going to be bringing in Carol Burnett and Johnny Carson and, you know, who all else? Probably not Johnny, I would imagine. That would be tough. Yeah, he's tough to book. Yeah, he's, uh, that's, that's a hard get. But, but Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett, you don't know. I, I don't know. You know, we know people. Yeah. None of them necessarily know Carol Burnett. Uh, suffice it to say, though, while we prepare for our final episode 15, which is sure to be uh, an extravaganza that you won't forget, we're going to take a little extra time, meaning uh, typically it's the 1st and the 15th of the month that we release our episodes. But we're going to wait a full month. So March 15th is going to be episode 15. And I think I speak for both of us, Daniel, when I say that's an episode you're definitely not going to want to miss. Don't miss it. Well, again, we want to thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy Bear. And I'm Daniel Long. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.